Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome back to another episode of The Banker Next Door. I am your host, Dr. Joe Berquist. I'm very excited today. I'm going to bring you, we have a special guest with us. Bob Newman from Chatham Financial is uh, is with us, and uh, I can't wait to bring him in. We're going to talk about a very hot topic today, derivatives, and we're going to get into um, what his company does. We're also going to talk a little bit about why you know your bank or financial institution would consider using derivatives. And uh, we're going to get into some really interesting stuff. So with that, I'm going to bring Bob in here. Bob, thank you so much for joining us today. Joe, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Oh, great. Uh, could we start off today? Could you maybe just tell us a little bit about the company and what the you know what the company does and what you do there? Sure. No, glad to. So Chatham Financial... Um, is the largest and oldest independent advisor in the interest rate derivatives markets, headquartered right here in southeastern PA, Kennett Square, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. um, founded in 1991, we really exist to demystify um, and, and equip and educate um, our clients, and in my case, community and regional banks, um, to make prudent use of interest rate derivatives to manage risk. Um, you know, my role is really helping institutions along the East Coast, so I cover the Mid-Atlantic uh, territory for, for Chatham. But we started as a single, our, our founder worked as a single practitioner out of his home um, for the first five years in the 90s, um, started hiring some friends, uh, rented some office space. I joined in 2003 when we were a 40-person boutique, and today we're an 800-person firm with offices around the globe. Uh, serving different client verticals, uh, commercial real estate, uh, private equity, uh, corporate uh, companies, as well as financial institutions. And it could, am I wrong, Bob, or did I just see that you just your company just opened an office in London? We've actually just opened a New York office. New York, New York, New York. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah New York. Uh, yeah, that uh, with some new hires and just with um, you know, concentration. Um, with financial expertise up there um, for a bunch of reasons. We just opened up in New York, but we've, uh, you know, our, our, our roots are, are, are humble here in uh, the small town of Kennett Square. So it's a kind of a neat uh, entrepreneurial story as to where it started out. But now, yeah, we are in London. We are in Singapore, uh, Denver, Colorado, here in the U.S. as well. Uh, let me ask you a question. Would it be fair to say back in the mid-90s when this company was first started that, that derivatives were... Um, I don't know. I don't want to say necessarily a new product, but but a nuanced product, like something that banks really were not making a whole lot of use of back then, and that that has built very nicely over time. Would that be kind of a fair thing to say? I, I would agree, Joe. I think. I mean, the products. The first swap was done in 1981. Um, I would say it was primarily a you know a Wall Street with Wall Street uh, marketplace in the very early going, mid to late 80s. Um, in the early 90s, regional banks began to make use of, of swaps and hedging, um, but there were some, I would say there was a wild, wild west as, as the market grew, um, and you had some speculative uses of a very, I would say, a, a, an instrument that really designed to manage and reduce risk was sometimes used to take on risk, um, and you had some losses. Procter & Gamble, one of the most famous, um, and... Uh, the outcry from shareholders who had these losses. I mean, they used to call derivatives off balance sheet instruments because mm -hmm. the accounting uh, world did not know where to put them. So they put them in the footnotes. Um, and, and therefore, when Procter and & Gamble and some other companies um, took some outsized risks and lost money, um, the FASB 
completely changed the accounting standard to get derivatives onto the balance sheet. That was known as FAS 133, uh, came on in the late 90s, early 2000s. And that I would say the complexity of that accounting standard um, just really gave a lot of pause to smaller banks. Um, and, and that's where you kind of had this, uh, I'll say a little bit of a lockup in the market. Okay, fair enough. Um, let's go into this for a second. Usually I wait to ask the the interviewee their, their background a little later in the interview, but I think today I want to I want to go into that up front because I think it will kind of play into as we go down the road here a little bit. So could you give us a little bit of your background and basically explain how you ended up getting into this line of business and you know just how you have kind of evolved with the company here over about the last 20 years? Sure. No, I, I, as I can, I could try to, I'll try not to make this uh, short story too long, but um, I, I started, I'm a commercial banker. I say I'm, it's in my blood. I was a, uh, a credit trained commercial banker starting at Maryland National Bank in Baltimore. So I was a lender, did some work in the credit department, um, but the bank I was with, and we were just a regional bank in Baltimore, Maryland, um, decided to start up a swap desk in 1988. So I, I was, uh, kind of early into this market, but I go back to my college days when I left uh, my home in Connecticut to go to school down at the College of William Mary, uh, 1979. Well, Paul Volcker was just about to uh, embark on his career at the Federal Reserve Bank, and we had we had a a misery index with unemployment and inflation. So I'm while I'm tucked away in a economics classroom at William and Mary, looking at the theoretical realm of interest rates and inflation, Volcker was sending the prime rate up to above 20%. Um, and that monetary experiment, which successfully uh, brought inflation down to much better levels, um, the unprecedented volatility in interest rates, I believe really led to the innovation of this marketplace. Um, swaps um, came onto the scene to allow parties to transfer floating rate interest rates risk for a fixed rate guarantee. Um, and the power of that exchange has made these products just continue to grow over the 40 years they've been in existence. So I feel like uh, you know, my, my college days and my early days in banking, um, you know, we were coming through this, again, gyrating, volatile interest rate market that had never been seen before. Um, interestingly, uh, a time that's being uh, compared a lot to what we've been through in the last 18 months in terms of the velocity of the change in interest rates. No, that's a great thing. And I, I wanted to point that out, Bob, just because of your, your background coming from banking. And I think that's a very important thing as we as we get into kind of our next couple of questions here, because we're going to talk about, you know, why would a bank use some of these products? How can it how can banks use this to their to their benefit? And uh, and I and so I, I just wanted to point out that, you know, you come from the banking world. You have that banking background. You're not you know, you're not a person that's that's unfamiliar necessarily with the with the customer that you're trying to serve. You you come from that world. You understand that world. And I think that's a very critical part to this, uh, because, you know, again, I think a lot of bankers, uh, a lot of times they're 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 getting, you know, uh, vendors or people are coming to them that aren't necessarily from that banking world. And sometimes they get a little frustrated because they don't know how to like relate or really understand why the bank does some of the things they do or some of the decisions they make. So, again, I just wanted to point that out. It's um, it's a small thing, but I think it's also a very big thing at the same time. So with that being said, could we talk a little bit about um 
you know, what you described as kind of like the level set, like, like what are swaps and, and why are they so widely used? Sure. No, I, I think, you know, at their essence, and I mean, the word derivative is, first of all, that's a charged word. I think, uh, I think somebody famously once called it the 11 letter, four letter word. Um, <laughs> um, and I did not do well in calculus. So it's, um, but derivative just means something derived from something else, but the interest rate swap, um, I think is the simplest and most vanilla uh, instrument that would fit into that very broad category of derivative. And when we're talking about an interest rate swap, um, the power that comes with that is that you're really extracting um, the ability to transfer fixed for floating risk um, and, and hand, handling it outside of the physical asset or physical liability. Um, so the ability to put a contract in place you know, with a counterparty, and it's typically going to be a Wall Street bank, a, you know, a large, um, you know, super regional or, or 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 global bank are the are the primary, I would call the manufacturers or the leading dealers in this marketplace. You know, when a when a community bank would enter into a swap, um, you know, say with a Goldman Sachs, um, the ability to quickly um, jump out of a pair of shoes that are, is a floating rate exposure. I'm exposed to, you know, my, my margins shrink when rates rise and I can take that floating rate and trade it in for a fixed rate without having to change my deposit mix, without having to turn a loan spigot on or off. Um, the ability to steer the ship more nimbly and quickly, um, is, is what really makes these instruments very powerful, but it's nothing more than a contract between two parties, um, to swap interest rates. Um, but you can't really swap a rate. So we have to turn that into a cash flow or a payment. Mm -hmm. um, and the way we do that is we we have a face amount of the contract. We call that the notional amount. So it's essentially the principal amount on which we're going to calculate these interest payments. Um, but the principal doesn't change hands. It's just a marker. And then the two parties settle up between fixed and floating over a set period of time. Um, easier to illustrate with a diagram. So we're getting a little wordy here, but it's um, it's a simple idea that has a lot of power. Nice. And I think that's a great, great segue. Cause what I want to do is I want to bring in, so this is an article that I just wanted to show everyone while we were having this conversation here today, because I think this will help some people kind of contextualize what we're talking about here. So this is, uh, again, one of my favorite websites is anybody who's watching these other episodes will know. I love Bank Director uh, going here all the time. So this was an article that was just put up on Bank Director, I believe, just a couple days ago. It's called, I hedged my balance sheet for the first time in 2023. Now what? And this is written by uh, Ben Lewis, who is a managing director and global head of sales. And uh, I thought it was just a great article at pointing out here. It just talks about like strategic tool versus last resort, hedging versus trading, proactive versus reactive, uh, consistent versus sporadic, and then holistic versus micro and macro. Now, Bob, with like without like you know getting into the whole reading the whole article and everything else. Uh, what, what do you think? I mean, is this, would this be a good, uh, just the, if, again, assuming nobody knows anything about this and they just want to, you know, just to kind of get a, a quick overview real quick, would this be kind of a good place for them to start just to take a quick look at this article? I think so. Ben's a very good friend and a colleague. Um, that's a great article. Um, I mean, the approach, you know, we take as a firm and I think what the article really attempts to do um, is to create, I would say the right mindset 
around these tools. And we often will say the idea that if you're a community bank, I would say if you're half a billion in assets and growing, you want to have access to these risk management tools in your toolkit. Um, and then when that's there, think about it as a, a strategic discipline. It's not a once and done. Um, I think because the economics of swaps have been so compelling, you know, with the volatility, with the uncertainty, and with the way the the pricing is set up, there's an inverted yield curve that provides some pretty interesting economics. Um, there have been a lot of swaps sold, um, and we would say to a bank, do you want to be sold a product or do you want to install a tool that you use in a disciplined fashion? So that's the, I think the point of the article is to really think about um, installing, gaining access to these tools, then reviewing uh, possible, you know, possible use of the tool alongside traditional means to manage risk like wholesale funding, um, changing duration in the bond portfolio. There's multiple levers you can pull uh, to alter your rate risk profile, but the derivative is another one to consider. And just to do that at regular intervals as the ALCO meets, for example. Nice phrase. And uh, yeah, for anybody who doesn't know, ALCO is, that's an acronym for asset, uh, asset and liability committee where, you know, every bank has an ALCO committee and, and I'll have to get into that and explain that in another episode. That's a whole nother conversation, but just, just again, just for some context so people understand what, you know, what Bob is talking about there when he says ALCO, um, it's a committee that meets within the bank that tries to examine the bank's assets and liabilities and to determine what the sensitivity is to different levels of interest rate fluctuation. Obviously, as Bob alluded to earlier, we've had uh, a you know big shift in interest rates here in the last year, year and a half, and uh, and that's caused you know obviously uh, I think and I think Bob would I think Bob would agree with me on this. Uh, Alco committees have probably been a little boring the last you know ten years until the not so the last year and a half. The last year and a half. Uh, the ALCO committee was probably the, the hottest ticket in town. I mean, that the every, you know, when banks were going in and having those those meetings, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of hard conversations going on there about, you know, what to do and how to handle things and and what are some of the things at our disposal. And, and that's why I thought that this topic today, Bob, was so timely, because this really is a tool that I think can really benefit a lot of banks out there in the market. Uh, and, and I think that... Um, I, I don't know. And I, I don't know. I'd ask you, like, I mean, how many how many banks do you does your company deal with now? Across, just say across the U.S. Are we talking about, you know, dozens or hundreds? I mean, how how, how many banks do you guys typically deal with? No, we have about 250 uh, bank and credit union clients, um, uh, really of, of down as, you know, half a billion, maybe some smaller. But that's usually the entry point at about 500 million. And then some banks that have grown up with us, we work with, um, you know, well over a hundred billion, you know, some banks up that size as well. So doing different things for them in this space. So it's uh, the service level looks different for the community bank versus the larger regional. Uh, but no, but I think to your point, and thanks for throwing the jargon flag. I always, when I do education sessions, um, even when, uh, you know, doing the uh, derivative elective at Stonier, I'll say if the, if I throw out, you know, ridiculous jargon, just throw the penalty flag, let's talk in plain English. And I appreciate you doing that. A minute ago, but the alcos are 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 no less boring this year. I think um, deposit rates have not yet, I think, peaked at a lot of places. So even with the Fed on hold and perhaps poised to cut, that's the seems to be the consensus thinking right now. Um, but there's still a lot of uh, uh, I'd say 
upward pressure on deposit pricing that's causing some margin issues. Well, yeah, and 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 we could get into a whole conversation on, on deposit rates and and also what the Fed is going to do here over the next year. Um, I think some of the inflation numbers that just came came out. Uh, like in other words, I, I, my opinion is I'm actually not in favor of the Fed cutting rates right now. I think the Fed needs to kind of hold the you know not maybe not necessarily increase, but I think they need to kind of hold things steady for a little bit and really make sure they've got the inflation thing truly kind of defeated and, and under under wraps. Like I, I would not be opposed to the Fed maybe waiting another six to eight months just because, you know, interest rates take they're a lagger. They they take a while to kind of really get in to see, you know, what what's going on. I mean, unless the and unless we really started to see signs that the economy was really going to start to tank, uh, and then then maybe it becomes a little bit different conversation. But right this minute, um, and there's no doubt. I mean, the the, the market right now. I mean, they're they're pricing in a, a, like I think a lot of rate hikes this year, not just like a few, which is a little baffling to me because everything we've heard from the Fed would indicate that that while they may consider cutting rates, it's not going to be drastic rate cuts. Or to probably maybe looking at 50 or 75 basis points, but yet the market seems to think it's going to be like 150 basis points, 200 basis points. And I just I don't know. I just I, I don't I don't see that. I think that's I think that's a little I think the market's being a little uh, overboard right now at the moment. But but I, that's just that's just my my two cents. Yeah, well, we plenty to talk about there. I think we I'll I'll, I'll just hold hold back for now. But uh, <laughs> I'll just say this, though. I think um, I, I joked about this last week. I, I was at a conference down in Maryland, the Maryland bankers. They do a first Friday every January. And Tom Barkin from the FOMC, the, the Richmond uh, Fed president spoke. Uh, but the comment I made just to a fellow banker was that, I mean, the fact that nobody really knows what the Fed's going to do, that's why I have a job. I mean, the interest rate derivatives market, the ability to trade uncertainty for certainty, everybody's got an opinion. And even if you're running your bank with a view, um, the swap market actually is priced with five or six cuts in the next you know, 12 to 15 months. And if you think they're not going to do that, you can actually get the benefit. If those cuts benefit you, you can grab them um, mm -hmm. by doing a swap. So um, knowing what your own view is, but then bringing it to the swap market and seeing what the trade-off is, there's some pretty interesting opportunities. So I'll try to keep it high level there. But um, since you brought that up, I think, um, yeah, more to talk about there. Yeah. Oh, no, definitely. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. So um so let me see here. I'm just going, just running down my, my list of questions here real quick. So uh, uh, do you, um, let me ask you two, two questions here uh, as we kind of get, as we're getting closer to the end here. Um, do you, is there anything right now, if you, in other words, if you're working with a bank, is there anything that you might be advising them to be thinking about? Like as we, as you know, as we're getting into 2024 here, it's in terms of, you know, them looking at their balance sheet. I mean, any, any just kind of general thoughts you might have of things they might be wanting to consider? Sure. I mean, strategically, I think it really does depend on the bank's risk profile. So we don't ever come in with, here's the product everybody should do. Um, Chatham's balance sheet uh, strategies desk. Um, in the fourth quarter, in the beginning of this year, um, about half of our activity has been helping, I'll say, an asset sensitive bank, you know, one that's exposed to falling rates put on what we might call a down rate hedging strategy, more like a floor, you know, let's, let's buy protection against falling rates because we're going to get hurt when the rates come down. Um, but 50% have also been still doing 
you know, what I would call up rates protection. So a, you know, a, a pay fix swap. Um, and I think instinctively you might say, aren't we late in the game? Isn't it too late to hedge against rising rates? I mean, if, if we're at the peak, um, but with short-term rates in the mid fives and a five-year swap rate, not far from three and a half, uh, there's that, well, I call it positive carry or some, uh, you know, incentive to actually pick up uh, some relief from, from some of the pain you felt from rising funding costs um, and protecting against a, a higher for longer outcome that's still possible. Like, yeah, inflation blipped up today. Um, the Fed may just sit tight where they are, even though we all mm -hmm. think they're coming down, they may not be in a hurry. So um, I would say that our recommendations really do depend on the bank's risk profile. I just, I would go back to say um, for banks of a certain size, if you don't yet have these capabilities installed in your in your native toolkit, I would say um, you know, take that step and 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 get access to these tools so you can consider them on a regular basis. Nice, no, perfect. That is fantastic. And then, and just a um, and and I thought this was a good question just for the audience for people that just don't um, understand or know much about derivatives. So I think you know, I my mind always you know you go back to two thousand eight. You kind of hear that that famous line from Warren Buffett of like, oh, derivatives are weapons of mass destruction and. Uh, and the the derivatives market has grown. It has grown exponentially since that time, since 08, you know, over the last 15 or so odd years. Do you know, as a person who works with derivatives every day and, and who's in that market? I mean, I mean, what what's your general thought? Like if somebody was was to come up to you off the street and say, you know, like, oh, I'm scared to death of derivatives or, or I don't really understand them or, or don't you have concern that this might come back and, and you know, the derivative market might blow up on us somehow or something like that? I mean, just do you, do you have any kind of uh, general thoughts when maybe you're having a conversation like that with somebody? Oh, I do. And I think. Um, first and foremost, you want to make sure you're you're putting in place the correct economic hedge. So you don't ever want to exacerbate your risk, um, and then regret regret the economic outcome of a swap because the market didn't go your way. You don't want to even bet if you're hedging. If the hedge goes bad, then your natural position should go well. I mean, so there shouldn't be any you know remorse on the economic outcome. But I think if you're going back to '08 and um, you know, thinking about uh, what I'll just call, I, I remember it was talked about from the moment I started this, uh, <laughs> I'll say this, this uh, deep dive back in the 80s, this idea of it's a house of cards, right? If, if everybody's mm -hmm. trading with everybody, if one falls, will they all fall? That was a, we were close to that moment in 08 mm -hmm. uh, with AIG and then the Wall Street banks. Um, the important thing to keep in mind, and it's sometimes, I, I bring it up at board meetings a lot when I'm doing board education sessions, um, is that since the crisis, um, the regulators mandated derivatives, you know, we would call them over the counter, you know, just a bilateral two-party contract to be moved to a clearinghouse um, for the largest bank. So $10 billion and up, if you're doing interest rate swaps, um, a central counterparty or a clearinghouse would stand in between you and the, and the party you traded with, and that's a cash collateralized, you know, cleared position even for the bilateral, you know, again, the, 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 the very simple vanilla swaps that we do for community banks today with the likes of Goldman Sachs, US Bank, other counterparties, um, it's a, it's a, they actually will agree to a two-way cash collateralized agreement. So you think about all the different you know, swap 
going back and forth between all these different people. At the end of the day, our clients are entering into a cash secured obligation with Goldman Sachs as an example. So um, that's really made counterparty risk. I would say the number one risk when you go down the laundry list of what are the risks of interest rate swaps, counterparty risk was always my number one. And post crisis and now 15, you know, 16 years later now, um, the ability to secure that risk with cash makes this a much safer uh, game to be playing. The banks that did swaps with Lehman Brothers in 06 and 07, we saw folks take losses on those. They were not secured. Lehman went under. There were losses. Mm -hmm. uh, but today you do ha end up with a secured position and that helps a lot. Yeah, and I just wanted to point that out because, uh, again, I think there are a lot of misconceptions out there in the market. And I think there are a lot of people that don't necessarily know a lot about derivatives and they just they just think about those kind of stigmas that are that are out there. So I, I just think it's good that a lot of people understand that the market has changed. You know, going back to the very beginning when you talked about kind of how when the company first started in the mid 90s was a little bit of like the Wild West and that, you know, a lot of companies were using derivatives in a, in a much more uh, uh, riskier fashion than, like you said, a lot of the plain vanilla stuff that kind of goes on on today, and the way that the whole system is designed today is 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 very different from what it was, you know, 15, 16 years ago. So, so I, I appreciate that, Bob. I mean, definitely thanks for for pointing all that out. So, um, so at this point, uh, I'd like to get in as we as we wrap up here. I like to my my two kind of favorite questions I like to ask of all my guests is. Uh, do you have a, a favorite business book and do you have a favorite business related movie? Uh, maybe something you've seen in the last couple of years or something that you like. Sure. No, I gave that some thought. Um, I, I think if I go in the book direction, I'm just going to pick Michael Lewis's books are great. So the big short, I preferred the book to the movie. Um, that might be my favorite, but I flash boys was fantastic. And my first read yes. was liars poker. When I went from being a commercial lender to sitting in the trading room with, with the bond traders of my, uh, 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 bank, I remember even being invited to play in a liars poker game. So, so liars poker, uh, when he was at Solomon brothers, that's a great read, uh, by Michael Lewis. Um, and then the movie, it's going to be a complete shift of gears. I have to go with, it's a wonderful life. Um, I, I am the son of a community banker. Uh, my grandfather was also a community banker. So the, you know, George Bailey, Bailey building and loan and just the, the relationship aspect of banking that is, uh, on display there. And just even the, the banking lessons about liquidity and, you know, the bank run scene, um, it's a lot more than business, obviously, but that's, uh, a, a lifelong favorite of mine for sure. Oh, no, it's an absolute classic. And I, I definitely I, I right there with you. I highly recommend anybody who has not yet seen A Wonderful Life. Uh, it's 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 not just a movie about banking, but it's a movie about life. And it's about just great lessons learned in life in general. And so that's why I think that that movie has really stood the test of time. But uh, you got to love the fact that they that it's the the local community banker. That's the 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 main guy in the story, Jimmy Stewart, the hero of the story. And uh, and it's it's just fantastic. And and I love your point about Michael Lewis. I, I just used uh, I, I actually have been doing like this crypto series. And I just used Michael Lewis's new book called Going Infinite, which was all about S, uh, SBF and, and FTX. Um, uh, amazingly, Michael Lewis was actually there with SBF 
when the whole company was going down because he was planning on writing a book about him. But, you know, obviously the, the, the book that he was planning was not about the failure. It was, it was going to be just talking about the, the success in the crypto market and everything. And then he just happened to be there when the whole thing imploded and he got a firsthand account of everything, which is kind of wild. Uh, I mean, how, how often in life would something like that ever happen to somebody? Um, so, but we, we used his book, but yes, I'm, and, and I review a lot of books here, a lot of business related books on the podcast and definitely flash boys is, is one of the ones I've got, uh, that I'm going to be doing here in the next uh, couple of months. So I'm really looking forward to that. And obviously liars poker is a classic. The big short is a classic. And, and I agree with you. I actually did the big short. I liked the book a lot more than I, I did the movie. The movie was great. But I liked the, I enjoyed the the book more than I did the movie. So which, yeah. which I'm glad. Yeah, you, know. I, you are. I I knowing you, Joe. I know you're a very well read individual. So uh, I've been waiting for that book to come out on crypto. <laughs> so I didn't know it was out yet. So you just uh, I think gave me a weekend read to to consider. <laughs> Yeah, check, yeah. Check out the the episode I did was it was the crypto series. It was part four of the crypto series, uh, which was uh, which was basically. Uh, oh no, I'm sorry. It was actually part three. It was because it was it was really focused on on kind of the uh, the crypto crash of of 2002 and and just all how that all transpired and what happened there. And it, like like I said, I thought it was a, a great read. I thought it was fascinating. My uh, my only drawback on it was that I, I thought that uh, I thought that Michael was went a little easy on uh, Sam Bankman Free. That was really my only my only criticism of it. But uh, but other than that, it was a great book and it was it was very uh, it was very fascinating. So it just you know I'm I, I find the whole uh, crypto thing to just be a, a very interesting you know an interesting world with a lot of interesting characters. That's for that's for sure. I will check that out. But anyway, but uh, but thank you so much for joining us today, Bob. I mean, I really appreciate you coming on. And and just so people know, our plan here was that today's uh, podcast episode was going to be kind of a general conversation, kind of the, the macro level. I am going to invite Bob to come back so that we can do an episode on the micro level because I would love to show just, you know, one or two examples of how some of these uh, kind of vanilla uh, derivative contracts work that Bob was explaining earlier in the episode. And so we're going to have Bob back to do that. And so I think that, I think at that point, people will really get a real idea and a, and a general understanding of how these things work, uh, which again, I can't wait to do, but, but thank you so much again, Bob. I really appreciate you coming on and, and spending the time with us today. My pleasure, Joe. Thanks for having me. Thanks. All right, everyone. Well, if you like this today, please make sure to like, subscribe, uh, leave a comment below. I always love everyone's comments and try to get back to everybody as best I can. Uh, please make sure to check us out. We're on YouTube. Uh, we're uh, on, what are we on? We're on YouTube, Rumble, and all major podcast platforms. So I just thank everyone for uh, joining today and hope to see you again real soon. <laughs>